Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a project in collaboration with the AANS Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly you'll be joined by my co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He's an Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at UCLA and the immediate past chair of the YNC. We're glad that you joined us as we uncovered the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey. Uh, This is Mike. I'm joined here by my excellent co-host, Dr. Johnson. We have some exciting news. Um, Dr. Johnson has been hired as an associate professor at UCLA. Dr. Johnson, I wanted to say congratulations and welcome back to uh, co-hosting the podcast with me. Hey, thanks, Mike. It's good to be here again. Yeah, different environment on my end, but it's nice to be back. Zoom connects us all, no matter where you are, you can't get away. Today, we are discussing what uh, early medical students, first, second year, kind of a nebulous term, but uh, early, early medical students, what they should be thinking about and cognizant of as they try to navigate the, the path towards neurosurgery. And to help us do that, we have a uh, Kyle Zappi. He's a second year medical student at Wild Cornell Medicine. He previously graduated from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette with a degree in chemical engineering. He is currently the project manager for the Brain and Spine Report with MSNTC and has done a great job with that. Um, Besides neurosurgery, his clinical and research interests include biomedical engineering, medical education, and queer health. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is is an important discussion that we've had in other forms, uh, whether it's the undergraduate episode or sub-eyes or that sort of thing. I think, you know, this is kind of a natural topic for us to discuss. So kind of like those episodes, we tend to do it in a format where the person where they're trying to get the info gleans the info from people who have tried to do it in the past. So Kyle, we will let you um, guide the discussion here if you have any questions um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you've gone through the process? You know, our, the bio tells us a little bit about you, but why don't you expand on what your interest in neurosurgery, some other interests of yours and how that all ties together, and then we can get started and how we can uh, help you go through the process. Yeah, sounds good. So in terms of just medicine in general, I think I was always interested in medicine and I decided early on to take the engineering route through pre-med just because I really liked it. And I thought that going through something I enjoyed would be a good path to a career in medicine because many people told me that that was a possible career route. In terms of neurosurgery, I remember distinctly that I was always honestly kind of afraid of neurosurgery. I thought it was the coolest, especially by far. Like I would just enjoy watching like neurosurgery educational videos late, late pre-med years. But it wasn't until the summer before medical school where I really started to consider and like, I'm afraid of it. I respect it, but I couldn't imagine me doing like many other things. And medical school has only cemented that. I've gotten to meet some great mentors. I've gotten to see operations and I've really started to latch onto that. That's great. So what was your first experience with neurosurgery itself? Honestly, it was through brain and spine group before, because due to COVID shadowing was extremely- Good answer, Kyle. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, Due to COVID, like shadowing was like, there was no shadowing going on. Uh, and I spent my first semester in Louisiana in my, in my hometown. So I was, it was 
pretty hard to get to Cornell to shadow, but really online education and resources like uh, brain and spine group was my big entrance into understanding like the general culture and what actually is going on with neurosurgery. And when I actually got to get to uh, New York city, I reached out for shadowing opportunities and reached out to mentors and understood like what more, what I need to be doing right now as a first year medical student to bring me closer to honing in my interest and also becoming a better, you know, eventual neurosurgical applicant. It's great. Well, well, you touched on something that I think we'll uh, circle back to a little bit later, but before we do that, Dr. Johnson, you, you know, it's been a theme of our past episodes that start earlier, but what, what in particular about first and second year medical students do you think lends itself to a, a more exciting time? Obviously they're, they're more of a blank slate, and, and how do you think that it's important to start earlier in medical school? And, and regardless of what the school they go to, how do you think they should be able to navigate that process? Yeah, I think it's definitely a recurring theme. You know, the earlier you know that you're interested in something um, and can kind of get plugged in and involved, the better off you'll be. I mean, I think this is particularly important as, you know, the field becomes more competitive uh, as far as applicants, especially with the research becoming such a burgeoning differentiator particularly with the, you know, the exam, step one exam being pass fail soon. And I just think that it's really going to be challenging to have a lot of research experiences in, you know, especially in medical school in that short compressed time period between first year and when you apply with all your other obligations, unless you plug in really early, you're going to be a little bit behind, you know, unless you do that. So I think, you know, someone like Kyle or, you know, anyone who's, knows early on that they're interested in something, I, I would certainly seriously look into connecting with someone like a program director in the program, um, residents, um, and particularly with an eye towards what can I do in, 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 in a department for research, you know, particularly if you have a neurosurgical department in your institution of your medical school. And also just showing up to grand rounds uh, if you have time just being around and being interested and engaging and becoming friends with everyone will help you a lot later, both to potentially match at your home program, um, but also um, people just feel like they know you better and it de-risks things better the longer they've known you for writing let, you know, strong letters in your behalf. And, and it just in so many levels, it's helpful. I don't want to say that if you don't know your first year that you're out <laughs> you know, or you're way, way behind or you can't do it um, and you can't get into the field. I don't think that's true at all. But I just think if you do know that it, I think it can be helpful. You can use that to your advantage. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great summarization of, of some of the nuance that we'll get into here shortly. So Kyle, like we said, we'll let you direct some of the questions that you think um, that you both you have and that you think you know other first and second year med students may have who, who may be interested in neurosurgery. And really, this is kind of true of any field, but obviously the competitiveness of neurosurgery and you know, other subspecialty surgery, um, other surgery, surgical subspecialties, those, those lend a particular kind of anxiety that is the reason that we're having this discussion. So why don't you, uh, you know, take it away and, and we'll go from there. So Dr. Johnson actually brought up a really, a really good point that I want to circle back around to is, is, is really jumping onto research early. And when I'm, when I'm talking about this now with a lot of the first years who are coming in, because a lot, you know, they're, they're reaching out to the M2s, the M3s, the M4s, asking for advice, you know, because they're, they're, they have a lot of energy and they really are excited to jump on something right now. And 
I'm reminded of the questions that I had a year ago. And a lot of it has to do with those soft skills on, you know, we, we tell them it's important to reach out to faculty or reach out to residents on getting involved with research and neurosurgical activities. But how, how exactly would you re recommend that they make those initial connections? Because you're really riding a fine line between, you know, showing interest and just being kind of, kind of annoying. So how would you recommend students make those initial connections with research? Dr. Johnson, I'll let you take that because you're in, uh, I think, better versed on uh, navigating those, those uh, conversations than I am. Yeah, I think there's no right or wrong way. I mean, I think a really nice way is if you know someone that knows the person is to have someone make an introduction. I think that's like a really nice way to go about it because, oh, uh, you know, a resident introduces you to a particular faculty member by saying, hey, you know, this uh, student is really interested and they've, uh, you know, whatever, done X, Y, Z with us as residents or I know them, you know, and they're really great from another project. And let me introduce you to them and they want to get plugged into your lab or, or whatever the case may be. I think that's really great. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I think certainly you can just directly reach out via email and or if you're able to attend like grand rounds or some, you know, I know this is a lot of this is by Zoom now. But if, when they're in person grand rounds or something like that and you just bump into, you know, someone you're interested to meet or to speak with, you know, after grand rounds and maybe make an appointment to meet with them at some point. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, those are just some options. Uh, but the, the thing I tell everyone is when you meet someone and you want to talk to them about research, for example, always be prepared, <laughs> you know, kind of have, like, have a plan in mind a little bit about what you want to do. So, um, you know, do some background research if you are able to get some sort of meeting or time with them and know what they've written about, if they have a lab, what their lab does research and like kind of have a plan in your mind. And I think that will that will impress them rather than you know, what we don't necessarily want as much is someone that says, Hey, do you, I want to meet you and I want to do research. And then that's the, the period at the end of the sentence. I think it gives you bonus points if you kind of have some sort of project in mind or a direction in mind or something like that, or at least some background research. Yeah. Yeah. Do the research on the research. I, I just have a couple other things to add, you know, broad strokes, research is going to become even more important, right? As, as there's a, a move away from board scores being the litmus test for interviews, you know, I think there's going to be uh, obviously a, a bigger emphasis on scholarly activity in place of that, you know, and so that, that means research, that means getting involved with the specialty in other ways, you know, whether it's brain and spine group or your double NS chapter, or whatever, you know, when you connect with people, I think what Dr. Johnson said is, is true in terms of having someone make that connection with you. I think people are afraid of asking for help, you know, in, in general, you know, if there's a, a friend of a friend whose dad's wife is a neurosurgeon, like you won't know until you start asking people around you. And this is particularly true for folks who don't have a home program. Right. I agree. Yeah. This is more challenging for them. No question. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, you know, once you've made that decision that you want to look into it and you want to I think research itself is a really good way to learn more about the field besides just, you know, looking at what the faculty are doing um, in terms of the projects, you know, you can always search their name on PubMed and see what has been published in the past. Look at finding ways to improve your research skills. So the hard skills, right? What's your biostatistics like? What's your scientific writing like? And what's your study design knowledge like? 
if you demonstrate at least a basic proficiency in those three things, and there are th- you know ways to learn that either through your institution, school of public health, or the medical school itself, or on LinkedIn or YouTube. I mean, there are ways to, to learn these sorts of things. If you demonstrate a proficiency and you come to the table with some of those skills, your ability to help them is going to be much more profound rather than it just being a charitable donation on their part to, you know, lead you to the greener pastures, whereas you're the one, you know, making that path and they're guiding you towards it. On on the flip side, you know, if you, if your only goal is to publish and that's important, right? In in 2020, um, if you look at the NRMP data, the average number of abstract publications and presentations, which is kind of a nebulous term, was 23 and a half for matched MD seniors. And in 2018, the number of actual publications published, right? True publications published is a paper that was published um, recently. In 2018, that average was 6.5. In 2011, that was a 2.5 or so. I might be misremembering that number a little bit, but so that you can see the trend is improving. So you need to publish, but if your only goal is to just get a number, get something on PubMed or get an abstract submitted, and then you're going to dip out, that will come across as crass and selfish, and you're not going to get the kind of letter that you need down the road potentially. And so I think that if you come to the table with some skills and eagerness to learn about something that you're interested in, not only just to publish, I think that those things will come together and you'll, you'll develop a um, friendship and a mentorship through a shared objective with that research mentor. So those are all some things that have, I've found both through um, tough love and learn lessons learned on my part um, that, and, and wisdom um, bestowed upon me as well. So um, I hope that helps kind of answer your question. Not as eloquent as Dr. Johnson, but. No, both eloquent, both eloquent. I, I would like yeah. I, I would second I would second Michael's kind of discussion on that. I think that um, there's a big difference from the faculty standpoint from someone who approaches you directly in particular. I think it's a little bit different if it filters through re, you know, residents or someone else. But if if, if, if a student directly uh, reaches out to you and then you give them like a you know very small project, but something you know that's reasonable for their level. And, and you have to like teach them how to write a paper that does not necessarily reflect really as highly on you as if you give them a project and they give you a pretty polished um, or close to it product. So, and, and I, I don't know how you learn it. If you've never done it, you know, maybe this is the time to learn, but, uh, but, but that is, that is something that, that just, just for like brownie points is nice. Like, like, uh, like Mike said, to know, to kind of know, know a little bit and have a good skill set before you start. Right. So maybe that's for the undergrads out there. Get <laughs> start getting some experience even now, writing scientific papers and things like that. And there's definitely a void, right? I mean, medical schools medical schools don't emphasize often in the curriculum competency based research skills education. I mean, it's it's not really it's talked about softly in the accreditation requirements and guidelines, but it's not like this is exactly what you need to do for each student. So. And, and it makes sense, right? Someone who's trying to do something less research focused doesn't need to learn every single thing about a, a way to do a meta-analysis or something. But if you come to a, the table with an idea um, and you've done your own literature search and you come to a faculty member or a resident and you show that, hey, I, I've done the research, I, I know kind of, a, I have an interesting idea. 
I'm pretty new to this. Can you guide me through it as I, you know, take this on? I think that'll go a long way. And it, you know, it shows, uh, it shows an initiative that you're going to have to display on sub internships, the interview cycle, and then ultimately when you're a residency. So I think that those are all skills that you're trying, you're kind of trying to show indirectly. Um, yeah. And I think if you don't have like a really strong idea, you know, because you kind of need to match your interests with the mentor, but right. if you don't have a strong idea, I think it's reasonable. I mean, most faculty have pet projects laying around. They don't have time to do. I think it's reasonable just to ask for a project. Um, right. But, you know, like you say, you have to, you have to be really ready to go at that point. You have to know how to do a literature review and um, see if it's a feasible project and then do each of the next steps in, in, in a reasonable manner for your, for your level and not kind of make it a slow slog <laughs> on the sink of someone's time. You know, the, the person that's interested in doing the project needs to really have some ownership over it and do a pretty good job. Yeah. Be able to follow through. You know? Yeah. And even if exactly, you definitely, you definitely don't want someone to give you a project and not be very vigilant about getting it done in a timely manner. If you just disappear with the project, that, that is, that is a, you know, a bad sign. Even exactly. if you don't get the, the, the help from the attending, maybe you get help from another resident or someone else you know to get it to a nice point before you turn it back in. It's important to do a good job if you're given a project. You know, and the perspective here is a young, uh, an early med student. So I, I tend to think that you should loop in. If, if there's something you don't know, loop in the whoever the person is at the next level above you. So yeah. a third or fourth year med student for me, it'd be, you know, a junior resident um, or just yeah. resident in general, because they tend to, they tend to understand a little bit more about where you're going through because they were just there. Um, they, and if they don't know the answer, then they'll be able to go up the next step on the ladder. So I think that's another thing, you know, if, if you're going from straight from early med student to, you know, professor, <clears throat> um, you may not be as success, successful as if you started with, you know, a senior medical student who's working on a project, um, who's obviously applying to neurosurgery and, and is motivated to get things done and you can help them and they can, you know, kind of guide you through the process and connect you to those residents and faculty as well. So those are all just some thoughts, you know, it's, it's never one size fits all. It depends on where you're at, the institution, what you're interested in, you know, how many faculty they have doing a particular thing you're interested in that those things all factor in, but those are, um, a couple of things to keep in mind. Yeah, I think that's good. I think another one is that I generally try to put students on with a team rather than just me and the student. You know, like it, there usually needs to be at least a resident or something like that who who helps out um, for these reasons. You know, I think that's that's reasonable too. You don't necessarily have to be able to write a paper in two weeks on your own, but um, but you know, definitely uh, want to have some skills to contribute. And that's what research is, right? It's a team based collaboration. Unless you're a hardcore PhD doing really strong primary science in general, most neurosurgeons have to work on being collaborative and yeah. working in a team to get things done. And so, uh, you know, your ability to display those soft skills that you're talking about as well as, you know, showing initiative and some of the things that we talked about, I think that goes a long way. So. Yeah. Everything you do with the neurosurgery faculty is, is a bit of a, you know, interview. Right. So it, it takes some smarts to navigate this, both just intellectually from writing a paper to knowing when you need to get help from someone the next level above you to knowing when you can really hit something out of the park and you can do it by yourself and impress the senior person, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, just like everything, it's kind of a bit of a lot of judgment calls to kind of navigate through successfully, but it is important to get you know, some sort of integration into a research team or program or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So some, something that y'all brought up 
is talking about publication type. You, you know, you mentioned that, that it was 23.5 abstracts, papers, et cetera. Can you explain the, because this, this is not obvious for everybody, especially for first year med students on the exact differences between those things. And if they matter equally, you know, like is, is, it, is, is an abstract something a med student should be hunting down as intensely as, you know, a co-author publication in their first year or so? So I can take the first half of that and then I will let Dr. Johnson maybe discuss a little bit which one, you know, you're asked, looking for it equally or, or how they're judged. Um, I'll let Dr. Johnson speak to that a little bit more. But so where that number comes from is from the National Resident Matching Program data. They published every biannually bi- and their charting outcomes in the match. And they published the way that the electronic residency application service, the way that you input your research, your scholarly activity is done in a couple different ways. So there's really research experiences and research items. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I think that it is important to discuss again, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. So you have peer review journal articles and, and uh, abstracts. So what that is, and those are published, right? So that's anything that you have submitted to a journal. It's been peer reviewed, typically double blind peer review. Um, I won't get into the nitty gritty of that, but typically double blind peer review that's been put through the ringer, judged on its you know science and its contents, conclusions whatsoever, and then published in that journal. If it's an abstract, that could be something like you submitted it to a conference and then some conferences elect to publish that abstract, right? So CNS will publish abstracts in clinical neurosurgery, that sort of thing. And, and you see those sometimes. So those are peer reviewed. Those are judged by your peers and then published, right? Then you have a couple of other different categories where research items can go in, right? And so those, those are things that are same thing, abstracts and p- publications that are submitted, accepted, or in press, right? So you've submitted a couple papers. They're not necessarily been published yet, but you still are able to talk about it really in an interview. That's kind of up in the air, how those are judged has been my experience in talking to people. If it's been accepted, I think that's something that you should be able to put on there and, you know, talk about. And then you have poster presentations, oral presentations, you know, you have peer reviewed online publications, non-peer reviewed online publications, right? So something like the Brain Inspiring Report and Fall kind of under peer-reviewed online publication. It's not really a journal, but it has been reviewed. Its content has been critically evaluated, but it's not really in a journal. So, it, and at the, re, the way I describe those is kind of how the hierarchy of its judgment. Now, then you get into the, like what the journal is. Are you first author or sixth author? Those sorts of things. So that's where all, all of those, the 23.5 is including all of those. Right. So did you present a poster and abstract at CNS? Did you then work on that paper, get it published in the red journal later? You know, that would be two items. Right. So that that kind of all falls into that. And I think it is confusing. And so hopefully that explains that a little bit better. The hierarchy of it is, I think, kind of comes down to the program and when they're evaluating resume. You know, some programs are really hardcore RO1 funded departments and they're interested in finding physician scientists or at least who can 
demonstrate a, a prolific publishing ability or, you know, maybe are MD PhDs and some are more clinically research oriented or, or maybe not res- as research oriented in general. And so they look more at, you know, are you able to publish a few papers, understand the process and we'll be able to continue that in residency. And there's a whole, you know, in between. Um, I don't know if Dr. Johnson agrees with that, but that's kind of been my experience. I do agree. I think you very, very well explained that, you know, just from someone who's been in the room um, when we look through all these applications and discuss them from during the interview process with the faculty making decisions about, there's like so many people that are so good, like, you know, how do you sort through them and, and, and you know, some, one person's strengths versus another person's strengths, you know, first author publications are, are, are really in, in, in a decent journal, you know, even if it's a case report or something like that, or, you know, they're really highly respected, just publications in general, significantly more respected than everything else. I mean, I've seen you know, the whole gamut from very little on, uh, you know, someone's CV as far as publications goes to people that have like first author publications in nature, right? Like, and, and those are, those are just home runs. I mean, you know, you've just won the lottery um, in a lot of ways. If you've, if you've had something like that, if you want to try to get to one of these research heavy institutions, I mean, that's going to be really well respected. And so, you know, the more publications you have, the better, um, the higher the quality, the better, <laughs> the more in total number, the better. I can't really tell you there's like a formula about how to best game that system. I think people just try to give you credit for hard work and, and, and your skill and your dedication to not only doing well in your studies, but also to doing uh, research. And, and it is a little bit of a different playing field for people that have PhDs and the like. I mean, they're kind of, you know, they've had years to publish, whereas your average medical student going straight through undergrad through medical school haven't had quite as long. So, I mean, there's a bit of an adjustment for that also. And that, that may be some of the reason why, you know, there's so many research experiences now compared to years ago is because people are, more people are taking a year off and doing research and, um, you know, there's still a fair number of PhDs in the mix. So it may be slightly artificially elevated now compared to a few years back, but, but that is definitely an overall trend is that research is important. Yeah. And I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, a couple other thoughts that I'll say. So in general, what I've been told, and Dr. Johnson, tell me if this is totally out of the left field, but I'm in the midst of it right now because I'm doing ERAS. If you can have one or two neurosurgery related publications that are first author, right? So that you can talk about in an interview shows that you understand the process, going through the revision process, all that, that's a really good anchor for your application. And then if you can get, you know, up to, you know, five to 10 other actual publications or abstracts, you know, in that first category that are truly peer reviewed, published in a particular journal, um, that kind of shows that you're able to be productive and then kind of everything else is on, on the, on the outside of that. So, and that's why some people take research years or multiple one or multiple research years, because they, maybe they haven't met kind of some of those arbitrary criteria. One thing that I would suggest is that if you're interested in neurosurgery and you're kind of starting this process as a first or second year medical student, be thinking about the kind of, I mean, one, figure out what kind of research you're interested in. You know, there's basic clinical or translational research, and they're all very different and they require certain skill sets that don't always move laterally. Obviously, PhDs are doing a lot of basic and translational stuff. So they'll have like, you know, five to six really good publications um, that are, you know, obviously really uh, highly respected, but they may not have as many numbers, right? Because they're so busy in the lab. So 
that kind of highlights. So what I suggest is people figure out what kind of research you're interested in. Look at, you know, go look at resident lists, especially like, you know, first through third, you know, junior residents and go search their name on PubMed and see what kind of research they are putting out at that particular program. There's, you can tend to see a, a trend in particular places and even in like kinds of institutions that are research heavy or, or maybe not so much. And you can kind of see what kind of publications they're putting out, how many they're first author, what journals and that sort of thing. And that can give you a decent idea of kind of what your goal should be. Because if you're someone that wants to go to UCSF or WashU in St. Louis, you're, the standard for you is going to be higher, right? Just because they're that's the kind of, they're looking for neurosurgeon scientists and they do a lot of um, really great, uh, you know, basic and translational work and they're really productive. So that's just the kind of, it depends on the place. It's not good or worse. It's just, that's the kind of resonant that they're looking for. And so that's something that you can kind of start to look at now. So that kind of gives you some goals to work through um, and, and identify mentors through the process. Would you say there's any utility in trying to have diversity within the research types, like clinical versus translational versus basic, or is consistency more appreciated? Like if you're working with one faculty member in one area and it shows that you're, that y'all work well together, is there any utility in trying to diversify? That's a good question. What do you think? I would say, I would say what matters more is productivity rather than diversity. I mean, I I think especially at the medical student level, you're such a compressed timeframe. You know, now if you're just going to work with one faculty, you have to like, like I said, you kind of have to vet these people as well as, as well as prepare to speak to them and make sure you're making a good connection that's going to help you because, you know, even, even amongst faculty members, they have different strengths and weaknesses, um, you know, and you want to make sure that someone has a lot of projects being published, you know, with multiple people, multiple students, multiple residents. And if you find a really productive situation, then there's no, really no reason to jump around. I don't think that like, when your application has been reviewed, they're like, oh, he's only published on spine or he's only published with one person or he's only published clinical papers. You know, I think people just, if, you're, if your goal is just to have a good looking CV for matching, you don't necessarily have to worry about that. Now, if, if, if like Michael said, if you're trying to gun for one of these places that are looking for clinician scientists in particular, that's a little bit different calculation. And, and, and you may need to think about having some sort of basic science or translational um, experience um, that can prepare you for, for looking good for those programs. But if, if, if you're just looking to get into a match in a residency spot, I don't think you have to be quite that careful about it. The, the kind of the big name top 15 programs and NIH funding, if you're really gunning for one of those and you really want to be a clinician scientist and you have to kind of really think about how you're going to spend your research time smartly um, and, and, and that may be something you want to do like at, at the local level with your, you know, local mentors say, Hey, I'm looking to get to, you know, be a clinician scientist and have a lab when I grow up, so to speak. Um, like, how do I get there? And I think we've had, I think we've had a fair number of, uh, kind of discussions about PhDs and different ways to go about that, um, in our podcast and some of the resources we've been doing, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question and I don't have a perfect answer for you, but I think it depends on what your goals are. It's kind of like, like Mike alluded to. Yeah, I think it's true. And even in a particular place, you'll have a, a difference in what the faculty are doing, right? Some people may be more interested in health policy and are publishing more quality control type stuff, outcomes-based research versus, you know, someone who is managing a, a lab with multiple postdocs and all that sort of thing. It, it really, you know, it'll, it'll differ. My experience has been, I've just been trying to be as productive as possible because 
someone who didn't have a home program. I kind of was just trying to find places that I could, you know, plug in and figure out and maybe answer some of the questions that I had. And then through that process, I've, I've used it as kind of reconnaissance to figure out what I'm interested in. And through this process, I've learned that I am interested in particular things that I would have never thought of in the past. And so I think you, I I shouldn't think that I think Dr. Johnson is right in saying you should be as productive as possible because, you know, most of us are just trying to match into spot, right? Only 70% of USMD seniors are matching in a given year. Like it is not a given. And so we just need, you just got to, you know, play the game a little bit, but through that process, be using it as a learning opportunity to foster some of your interests that you may not have, have uh, perceived on, on the front side. Okay. And so earlier, y'all, were, you just mentioned about um, talking, like trying to see what projects the faculty are doing, trying to understand how well they work with students and how productive they are with students. And that, that brings up an interesting topic. And this is, I was asked about this very recently from an M1 talking about like, how do they, how do you build relationships with faculty and residents in a way that's organic and a way that's not seen as like desperate because a lot of people just want to mass mass email the residents or multiple faculty at one time. And you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, pump the brakes, but how would you recommend do it in a way that's organic and best for both the student and the faculty? Find out where they get their coffee and then quote unquote run into them. No, I don't know. I think it's all the stuff that we've talked about. I mean, for the most part, you know, I'm at the point now where I've had folks reach out to me for things. And I'm very understanding that I was in that spot three, three years ago. I think, I think people who are the next step in line are going to be more receptive. So I wouldn't, like I said, I would start with the whoever's above you adjacent M one, two, and then reach out to threes and fours. Um, I think that's a good place to start just because you'll get plugged in. They'll be able to connect you to whoever's the junior resident that they're working with. Obviously, if they've been working for a long time, that relationship has been built. And it goes back to what Dr. Donson said in terms of having someone introduce you. So yeah, I don't think it's a magic formula, but it's, I think sometimes people don't know where to start. And that's where I would start. I would try to find someone who's done it recently where you're at and go from there, do all the research that we talked about. This is kind of true of anything, right? Like if you want to know how to learn how to do a, a junior resident skill or a, or a something that a sub I would be able to do, you don't necessarily need to immediately go and ask the you know senior attending on the service, right? Because that's because that's the process. Is it's a it's a mentorship type quote unquote model through the through the process. So that that's what I would say is the first step, and then just being polite and understanding of their time and being patient and not saying you know don't, if you're told no, like it's okay, <laughs> like move on, you'll, and that might, and don't burn bridges that, you know, that might come back. That relationship might come back later to, to help you, you know? So those are all, it's just common sense, quite honestly. I don't think that there's a magical formula. Yeah. I mean, I, I would add to that. It's just that um, I think this is very wise words, getting to know the residents, if you go about it the right way is very powerful. So so I think you just should just reach out to, you know, someone in the residence that either, you know, or you feel somehow like they may be receptive to you for whatever reason, you know, went to the same school or, or uh, you know, have some sort of similar background and just reach out to them and say, Hey, I'm a, I'm a first year medical student. I'm very interested in neurosurgery. Do you have like a second, like before or after work or like at lunch to like, let me ask you some questions about how the best way for me to go about this process. And my guess is that most people say yes. And then 
And then once you have that meeting, you say, hey, could I shadow you one day? Here's my number. They'll give you your number. And then you go shadow them around when you have a, you know, when they're rounding on a Saturday and they, you know, and you just see what neurosurgeon, you know, residents do. And then you, then you have the end to ask them a lot of other things like, hey, who's, who in the departments should I, would you recommend me hooking up with to do research? Um, and then, and then do you have any projects I could help you with? And then you impress them and then they make the introduction to the attending and you have another project and then they, you know, they're kind of your ally and you, you rise together. Right. So, um, you take some of the work off of them and then, and then they help you with like revising and making you look good. I mean, that's how I would go about it. You certainly can go right to a faculty level. Um, if you, if you have specific reasons to do that, you know, but, um, and I think a lot of faculty would be interested to talk to you as well. And then many places have interest groups, medical student interest groups, and that's a good place to get chatter chat around with all the other students and the residents come to those quite often and so the faculty you just kind of want to be friendly and and just inquisitive and kind of always want to be moving forward and and, and assimilating this information because it's, it's tough it's, it's, it's a lot of nuances to it that is absolutely true and something that dr johnson, johnson said earlier take advantage of the organic environments to be impressed just to be present so grand rounds every department almost is doing some kind of virtual learning or, you know, type of conference or that sort of thing that if you're not taking advantage, especially at your home institution or an institution that's close to yours, I think it's another really good place to start. Um, If you're not necessarily, you know, this is all under the assumption that you're like really interested in neurosurgery. Even if you're not, like if you're just like thinking about it, just go do it. Like you can't, you're not going to know that, you know, neurosurgery is the most competitive thing to go for. If you go for it and you decide you don't like it, you're going to be ahead of where you were if you had decided not to go for it because you're afraid that you weren't going to like it. So, and that would attract those skills would translate to any other specialty that you ultimately want to go for. So I just say, go for it, take advantage of the opportunities that are given to you. Once you show that you're present and interested, a lot of this stuff does just happen organically. It's not like where you feel like you have to, you know, be as, you know, like you said, desperate necessarily. Um, it kind of just happens. Um, so, and you know, a lot, and like Dr. Josh said, the residents, a lot of times are, they want to be referred as their first name. Like they're usually like very receptive and, you know, they like want to be friends, you know, cause that's who you're going to work with potentially in, in the near future. So they're, they tend to be pretty receptive to that, to, um, students coming in, and working with them, whether it's in skills labs or shadowing or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's totally true. And if you end up on a Zoom call, I mean, the way to do that is probably to communicate with the program coordinator at that, you know, residency program and say, hey, can I get added to the Zoom list or whatever? I'm interested in neurosurgery. And again, that may be where a resident could help you, right? Like, oh, doctor, whatever resident, you know, and I have been chatting and we're, I'm interested and, and you can see, see him in the email. And they can be, yeah, he's a great student, put him on the list. And, and if you're on there, of course, you need to be respectful. You can't be asking great, crazy questions. You probably should have your Zoom camera on. But if you do that, you need to be you know, awake, prepared, look professional, you know, not have um, the TV blaring in the background and being distracted, you know, things like that, you know, just, just have a nice professional background and, um, and yeah, you just, just be a kind of a quiet participant, but you'd be surprised by just people seeing your face and your name over multiple grand rounds will get you a lot of points. You'd be surprised, <laughs> you know, people notice uh, who's this medical student who shows up for our grand rounds. They must be really be interested, you know, it, it, it really, the little things matter at your stage. Okay, great. So we've discussed research and we've discussed mentorship. I was wondering in terms of just extracurriculars in general, such as like research, volunteering, what should we as first and second years be thinking about in terms of building meaningful extracurricular experiences? 
I'm definitely interested to hear what Dr. Johnson says, but what's the story you're trying to tell when you're in an interview in your fourth year? I think that's really what you want to be thinking about. So, you know, that's the goal. That's where you start. What's the story that you want to be telling when you get there? And that can change as you go through the process, but where you are right now as an M1, M2, whatever, what's the story you want to tell? And what are the things that you, what are the experiences that you want to have in order to be able to tell that story or that you think you need to be able to have to be able to tell that story? So getting plugged into neurosurgery is like the bare minimum. So like your AANS chapter interest groups, if it's just a neurology interest group, that's fine. Or surgery interest group, that's fine. Getting involved in national organizations like the Young Neuro, you know, going to the Young Neuro lectures and events and getting involved in committees where you can, you know, MSNTC where you can. I think those are all things that are kind of the, the no-brainers. And those are all, those will foster an environment for you to be able to tell that story. I think if you look at the data work experiences and volunteering experiences, the quantity doesn't really correlate with match success. So my view on it, and this is just my view, is that you should have like, I think it's better to have like one or two or three things that you can really talk about and show passion for rather than just like 10 things to check a box off of. That's not exactly how it is with research, you know, like research, you need to, I think having some quantity does matter. But when it comes to volunteering and those sorts of things, it doesn't really like, I don't see it as like being super important in terms of quantity. I think it is quality being able to show like, oh, I, I worked at this shelter for, you know, my entire college career and continue to do it in med school or something like that. I think that shows like that you'll show up and you'll show up for a while, you know, because as much as it doesn't feel like it, residency is a job interview, right? So think about if you were doing a job interview anywhere else and you had 20 different jobs in the past and you're there for three months at each one, are they going to want, does that show that you're going to be in the long haul for seven years? Right. So it's kind of this, it's kind of a similar idea. Uh, I have a second that I think that um, it is very good to see that the people you're hiring are good humans and have varied interests, which is why the interest part of the, you know, application still exists and why the service part still exists. But I think the details of them is less important. I think it's really nice to be, plugged into an interest group, um, whether it's MSNTC or something locally, if you lead that and you show some leadership experience, you know, leadership skills, that's even better. Um, but I don't necessarily think it completely makes or breaks you um, either way. You know, people take the whole application into account rather than just one or two parts. I think it's good to have some things in there. I think longitudinal involvement is very good. Like you're in the nursery interest group for three years and then became the leader of it, you know, at the end or whatever. And I think it's very good. I personally really like it when people have outside activities that they're, that they're interested in and have stuck with when it comes to service. Um, I myself did, I didn't know I didn't want to do neurosurgery until very late medical school. And um, I thought I was going to do primary care. So I went all in on an early concept called health literacy and how patients that surprisingly low, we have surprisingly low literacy levels in the country, <laughs> like 50% or something read below an eighth grade level. level. Um, and so if you talk about people's hypertension with them, they're not going to know what it means. You know, you have to speak really simply and explain things um, and have advocates for the patients to be there if, if you know, you suspect they're not. And, and so anyway, I, I did a lot of work on that and had a grant and set up a local sort of nonprofit. And um, I suspect that helped me um, explain what I did with my time, even though I didn't publish as much as some other applicants did. So I think everybody tries to take the entirety of the application into account, but, but I don't necessarily think you have to try and accumulate 
15 volunteer experiences as medical school, as well as five publications and 10 abstracts. Um, I, I think you should really focus, be, try and be a little bit more focused, uh, like Mike said, and, and seem like you have a plan. Right. I mean, you're the time that you have, I'm hoping to be there starting next year, but the time that you have outside of neurosurgery is very minimal. And I've been told you can have, have like one or maybe one and a half other things that you're interested in. And so if you demonstrate a passion for something and you've already kind of laid that base, that might be something that you can do outside of neurosurgery. And if it ties into neurosurgery, it's potentially a, a, a bonus, but it doesn't have to be, I don't think. You know, this is all kind of in the context of how things have been. With step one going past fail, who knows? This These sorts of things might be become more important or there might be a, a, a new type of um, thing on ERAS that comes out in the next several years that you know, that might be more related to more extracurricular or paraclinical type work. But at the, at where we're at right now, I think, you know, based on what the trend has been, which is an emphasis on research and scholarly activity, I would start there. And then, you know, and if you can loop in some like extracurricular type stuff into that, uh, I think that's a good place to start, but it's not absolutely not a, not a necessity like Dr. Johnson said. Okay. So you, you brought up something that I really, really want to touch on is Step one, going pass fail. And what that means for, I guess, the the way in which students will be assessed with one less objective measure in the application. Do you, I know it's very, very early, early to be able to make any kind of call, but do you think that it's going to be like step two is going to be filling all that void where step two is now double the weight almost? Or do you think that it's going to be more of a, of everything across the board taking a little bit more importance, such as, you know, research, like just a, a newfound emphasis on research. And like you were, we were talking just now, extracurricular activities and leadership. Do you think it's going to be like that? Or do you think it's just going to be step two is now the thing? What do you think, Dr. Johnson? I don't know if I'm qualified to make any determination. Um, on that. We, we talked about yeah, this in the past, but. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's 100% qualified because it's a bit of predicting the future. Uh, I mean, I've heard a lot of different people chime in about what they think will happen. And it is the gamut, really. It's um, all the way from step two will become the new step one to um, it's great that we can, you know, diversify the types of things that make candidates, good neurosurgical candidates away from like this one arbitrary test score and not eliminate people that are a little low on the spectrum on their exam, you know, for the rest of their career, <laughs> you know, dis disable their ability to you know, become a neurosurgeon because of that. So I, I don't honestly know. I mean, I think the arguments for getting rid of step one are pretty compelling, you know, not just from neurosurgery, but just in general, which are that, you know, it's not clear that that's a metric that predicts who's going to be a good doctor. And I mean, in neurosurgery, they've shown that the only correlation to your step one score is your written board score uh, as a, uh, a neurosurgery written boards, which is important, you know, to, to have that didactic knowledge, but how it really makes, you know, you successful as a resident or as an attending or as a neurosurgeon, I'm not sure. And so other things they've pointed out is that the test scores uh, tend to favor those that can afford and or have been directed towards the preps, prep you know, resources that not everyone has equal access to as students and things like that. So I, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I also don't know, necessarily know how it's going to affect everyone going forward. I would hope that it would be more on the extracurriculars and more on the leadership and more on the character aspects, but I just don't know. It may just be transferred right over to step, step two is a new step one. I don't think that's clear at this point. Absolutely. 
what I think, and that, you know, this is all, again, this is in the context of a first and second year med student. So you've already committed to a particular med school. You know, if you're an undergrad listening to this, that may, I don't know if it's worth like, it might be worth thinking about, you know, taking an extra year and trying to get your MCAT up and getting into another school. Like, because I think that might be more important is where, what institution you come from is already important. So that might be more, I think a proxy for that is what kind of letters of recommendation you have. I mean, everyone I've talked to tells me step one, it just gets you in the door and then they don't care in a lot of sense. I mean, the reason that they use it is because they get so many applications for one or two spots. Right. And so they have to have something in order to pare it down so that it becomes manageable. And then once they're there, then they start looking at a lot of the things that you would see and correlate to, to becoming a good neurosurgeon, like the curricular extracurricular stuff and your letters and that sort of thing. So if you have someone that vouches for you and should, I think those sorts of things will become more important. Um, Whether step two becomes that filter, I think is probably likely, at least in the short term. I mean, we, again, we don't know, but I would say it's probably likely, but I still think, you know, all you can do is excel on the things you can excel at in your application. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. And so excel on step two, who knows where it's going to play excel on your, you know, really get good letters and uh, get connected in the field. You know, that's all you can do. I, I don't envy like Dr. Johnson and, program directors and residents who are in the room trying to evaluate the candidates. Cause you know, in my experience, everyone I talked to just seems just like so unbelievably qualified, well-spoken and has shown a dedication to the field. And so I don't, you know, I don't know how it, <laughs> how it all works, but uh, you know, how rank lists are built. But I think that that's all you can do is excel on what you can excel at and uh, go from there. You know, I, I wouldn't worry so much about like trying to play the mind game of, trying to get in the head of a program director. Cause even in particular pro- different programs, you know, they rank candidates, you know, the way they rank candidates is different. You know, it, the who's, you know, who has more power, this is, you know, how much are the residents involved versus what they're interested in. Right. So like, I think that's all you can do is excel on what you can excel at and go from there and, and find mentors in the process that are helping make those decisions. Cause they'll, they'll really be able to, to guide you through that process. I think is important too, because I'm, you know, like I, I'm not the person to do that for sure, but I think you know someone like a program director at your home institution would be a great person to talk to about that. Yeah, I agree. I don't have much to add. It's just, uh, it's just you got to you just got to hit it out of the park, no matter which kind of like path you choose to follow. Whatever, whatever you put your time and attention to, you got to do it really well. Okay. Okay. Thank, thank you. Because yeah, because I, I, I've been really, really wondering about that, and I know that there's been a lot of people wondering about that, but I, I. I I'm I'm interested to see how it does evolve over the next couple of years, you know, and we'll be on the we'll we'll be on the ground level for that. So I'll 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 keep everybody updated on how it's going. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, you see, even like different specialties playing with different ways to, yeah, and we still don't really know the effects of the virtual environment too. With you know, is that going to continue? Like, how is how does that change things? And you know, programs and candidates' ability to evaluate each other. You know, you see some per, some different specialties messing with, uh, you know, trialing some things with, you know, certain tokens of interest like urology is doing, you know, secondary applications like internal medicine and general surgery are doing, right? So I think there's a lot to be seen with this process. So all you can do is, like I said, try to knock it out of the park in the particular area that you are at. And then go from there. And if you don't knock something out of the park, then make up for it in other areas um, and, and be thinking about, you know, what you need to do to, 
you know, be successful come, come March of your, your last year. Okay. Okay. So I, I have one more question and that is, so in your experience, what, what advice would you give that, that you've seen that separated applicants and not just applicants, like what has separated people who've become just really good in general clinicians and neurosurgeons from, from just, uh, what, what has separated them from the pack? And especially what skills can people hone in on early in their careers, such as like M1s and M2s? I am not the person to ask that question. To be good clinicians and nurses, this is a little bit confusing question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the, and like what skills should you at your level hone in on? Yes. Uh, as an M1, M2? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so like Dr. Yeah. Johnson, I think he's asking what, you know, what, whether it's an M1 or two, I think really any medical student, what can they be doing during their schooling to set themselves up to be good, make a really good resident, become a great clinician, good operator, that sort of thing. Okay. Got it. So, you know, this is a bit of a difficult question to answer because at least in my medical school, M1, M2, I was completely in the, in front of a, I wasn't a clinician at all my first one or, you know, two years with the exception of like this piece about kind of going around and just kind of seeing what you're interested in, um, you know, there's neurosurgery, two, three other fields in reading, you know, having a good fund of knowledge, knowing what parts of neurosurgery are, trying to correlate that reading to, um, you know, some shadowing and seeing what other people do and just being really intellectually curious about it. I mean, I think that's all you really need to do at your stage. Um, you know, when you get to be at third or fourth year, you need to be on top of vitals and labs and keeping track of patients and where they're going and what they're doing and be a little more patient oriented. But I think at an M1, M2 level, it's really, is this what I want to do with my life? Is this the lifestyle? Do I like the people I potentially work with? Uh, do I like the procedures? Do I like the pathologies? And that's really, in my mind, that's the stage you're at. I don't think, at least in my school, there was any room to be a clinician in my first two years. So I don't think, you know, there's not much room to work. This whole conversation about what to do in your first and second year is your grades. Um, and that, and that's to some degree because it's so variable between institutions, how they grade and, um, you know, pass fail at some institutions. And so a lot of, I think neurosurgery programs kind of devalue that. Yeah. I mean, you can, I think the, what you, the goal should be in the first couple of years, you know, and any, this is true of, you know, if you're new to anything, what is it actually like to be that? Right. Cause you see what it's like in a TV show or, you have an idea of something and it's like dating someone, right? It's like, do, do I like the idea of them or do I like them themselves? Right. <laughs> and so you, I think trying to do what you can to really figure out, do I like being, do I, do I like what a neurosurgeon is? And you can't obviously know that until you do it, but uh, I certainly don't have the, the perfect idea of what that is, but trying to put yourself in those positions where you can, you know, do you like managing patients in the neuro ICU? Do you like spending some time in clinic? These are things that well, a lot of neurosurgeons have to do, at least in their training, right? And so um, I think that's just something to keep in mind is just trying to get a, try to take off the rosy, the, the, the rose colored glasses and, and uh, learn a little bit more about what the actual field is like. And, you know, that, that's what you're trying to demonstrate ultimately in an interview is that you have a, a decent idea of what you're getting yourself into. I mean, that's the whole point of sub eyes, right? So that you get a, a taste of, you know, at least two months of, you know, I was working for way more hours than um, I'm used to, and I'm still getting up every day and looking forward to it, and I'm still applying, right? Um, so I think that's something that I would 
That's that. That's what I would focus on. And if you can get that, if you can figure that out earlier, then your ability to write your personal statement is going to be a lot easier. Yeah, I right. think the medical student um, chapters, if you, yeah. if you have one at your institution, that's really their role, I think, which is to like have a meeting and discuss neurosurgery to you know medical students and have faculty come and residents come and intermingle and try and sort these kind of questions out that that we we're talking about. It's like, am I interested in this and what is it like? And that's a really good resource as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, we might have time for one more quick question if you have anything, Kyle, but otherwise I think we can, this has been a good conversation. Do you have anything else? Yeah. If, if I could say something real quick. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I really want to talk about um, students not, it's, it's really important not to underestimate yourself in the first year. I find that people become very, very like imposter syndrome really becomes a problem and people kind of get frozen into not thinking that they're worthy enough to attend the neurosurgery meetings or people are afraid since they don't have a lot of experience with clinical research that they, they're very slow to jump on research. And I just, I just wanted to, you know, cause I've seen this throughout my first year that I, the only way you're going to get better at it is if you try out and if you, you know, sit, learn through doing it and you're not going to always know how to do everything, but I think it's very, very important to put yourself out there and just learn those skills by doing it. Yeah, I agree. Actually. Um, I, I was thinking earlier in our conversation that we talked so much about the nitty gritty details of research and how important it is that it may be intimidating. Um, I think, I think you just had to realize that it's you know, four years is short. It's, it's actually long too. And if you just kind of go at chip by chip, little piece by piece, uh, you'll be surprised how much you can get done. And I agree with you. I mean, medical school is a time to just experiment and just jump in and see what happens. I think that's a great place to end. Wise words from uh, Kyle and Dr. Johnson. Kyle, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. As always, thanks, Kyle. Yeah, no, thank, thank you all both for having me on. This was, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> great. Awesome. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes, or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.